Welcome to Music Lessons, the podcast where we explore the analogous principles of music and growth by interviewing top musicians. I'm your host, Andy Likens. My background is in music and scaling a music team at a fast-paced tech company. As someone who loves to learn and grow, I'm fascinated by the mental frameworks and approaches of musicians and how they can apply to our lives beyond just music. Whether you're a curious music lover or a lifelong learner, this podcast is for you. otherwise known as Big Data, is an accomplished artist, producer, and composer. His hit single, Dangerous, featuring Joy Wave, reached number one on the 2014 Billboard Alternative Chart and has since been RIAA certified platinum. His work as Big Data is beat-driven and technology-themed, featuring collaborations with the likes of Kimbra, Rivers Cuomo of Weezer, Dragonette, and Jamie Lydell, and he has performed across the globe. As a songwriter and producer, Wilkes has worked with a broad range of artists, including Channel Trace, Gnome Atlas Genius, Minder, and Moon Tower. In recent years, he has pivoted his unique hybrid sound into composing for film, TV, and advertising, including a score for the 2020 breakout comedy, Drunk Bus. He's also composed multiple campaigns for Apple and a reworking of the theme for NCIS LA. He is currently scoring a documentary called Left Behind about dyslexia and the NYC public school system. Please enjoy my conversation with Alan Wilkes. Alan Wilkes, welcome to the show. Hello. Happy to be here. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I have a first question for you that I think you'll appreciate, which is the first thing I want you to talk about, believe it or not, is your love of pizza making. Tell me about oh, it. Oh my God. I could go I could go deep here. I don't know how. <laughs> I could go deep dish here. Oh, let's see what I did there. Um yeah. I'll try not to go on for too long about <laughs> it, but it basically started as a pandemic hobby, as I'm sure it did for many people, but I'm pretty OCD. I'm not clinically OCD, but my dad is, so I probably am. I just haven't looked into it. So I get obsessed with things, and then I really do them for a long time, and pizza <laughs> became one of those things for me, and it was therapeutic and getting into how to make the dough and you know, tweaking the hydration percentages. And I just got really into it. And uh, then when I turned 40, my wife bought me a fancy pizza oven. Amazing. To kind of, you know, it's like my bar mitzvah for pizza, I guess. It's right. Like I'm finally a, a manly pizza man. <laughs> and uh, so now I can actually make pretty legit. It's pretty legit. I have a few sort of specific things I do, but I I would say that I do them pretty well. Cool. I don't know much about pizza making. Is it like, and you mentioned the dough and, and I think you mentioned it before in a previous conversation about the yeast and stuff. So are there like specific things you have to get just right? And then do yeah. you specialize um, on the, on each of those things or how does that work? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically like yeast, salt, water, and flour are, you know, 99% of what's going in there. And the ratio, everybody has different theories on you know, how much of what you should be using. And then different styles of pizza have different requirements. Like, uh, depends what kind of style of pizza you're making. Like, like uh, I try to make more slicey New York style. So I use a much higher gluten flour. So it's stretchier, basically. And um, I put olive oil in it to kind of make it more stretchy as well. 
because you want it to be like a big sort of floppy pie that you can hold and fold without it cracking. Right. Oh, I see. Right. There's also, you know, how hot you want your oven to get. Like my oven, I think, gets up to 900 degrees, but for, which is crazy, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> for very hot <laughs> for New York style, which I really try to do, you want it to be not low and slow, but low and slow for pizza, which is like yeah, six or 700 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And then people have different favorite tomatoes they use and, uh, you know, everybody's got their thing. So I wound up reading a lot of books and obsessively made dough for like three years <laughs> and i have a photo i have a photo stream that i don't share with anybody else but i put it on a photo stream <laughs> where i take a picture of each of my pizzas just to sort of monitor my progress and i'll make notes like you know i tried it with 63 percent hydration this week and it was a little too crunchy wow amazing so, you know <laughs> it's a lot like music That's making in the sense of you're constantly experimenting and tweaking and refining and you know so it, it, that's kind of why i asked about it i feel like um at least from what i know and we can we can maybe go here next but um you sort of started with all the ingredients of music making with your producing and, and remixing is that you know is that where it started for you i know you play guitar and you're a guitar player but can you just talk a little bit about how you went from kid playing guitar to remixer producer like that first stage i guess yeah let's see i started playing piano when i was five i wasn't happy about it but i did it it was kind of painful for me <laughs> my parents were like you've got to start on piano and now in hindsight i wish i'd done more piano and i wish i'd stuck with it for way longer but me too <laughs> whatever that's another conversation <laughs> um right around when i turned 12 all of my friends started playing guitar, which coincided with grunge music happening and mm. Green Day and, you know, everything we loved was guitar music and all my friends were playing it. And I was like, hey, I want to do that. <laughs> and so eventually I got a guitar and then the rest was sort of history because I and this is something I think about with my son now is like. My real entry into getting serious about music was learning how to play things that I loved, regardless of what style it was or what level of difficulty or whatever. It's like, as long as the joy of learning the thing was there, that ensured that I would want to practice it. And it didn't really feel like practice. It was so many of my formative guitar years were just playing along with my favorite records. So it, it let me sort of feel like I was participating in my love. It really never felt like work. It felt like this is just what I want to do with my time anyways. And then it sort of hit a, a plateau and this actually dovetails with the pizza and the OCD and like practicing was like an OCD thing for me. And I would play for hours a day because I wanted to get, get this one lick or scale or whatever. Perfect. And just do it over and over and over and over again. I remember one of my Maybe favorite's the wrong word, but maybe favorite guitar memory was learning Steve Ray Vaughan Rude Mood, which is like a basically like a blues shredder thing, but it's also soulful. It's not like cheesy shredder music because Steve Ray Vaughan was incredible and right. soulful and he loved <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. So there was there was a little bit of that in there too. And I loved Jimi Hendrix before I found Steve Ray Vaughan. So very logical. It's basically like Hendrix stuff, but 10 times faster. Right. <laughs> and so I just, there were several weeks where I just sat there and I would go 
you know, with a CD and a CD player. And it would like go five seconds at a time and just try to like learn the next five notes and just keep like adding on little mm. chunks of seconds at a time until I could play this three or four minute piece of insane guitar music. You also mentioned that I'm going to also tie this back to pizza making too. Okay, um, good. Yeah, the more the merrier. Which I suspected we might, right? Which is why I brought it up because I think it's super interesting. And the whole idea. I mean, I make, I make more pizza now than I play guitar. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> you mentioned that the pizza making became therapeutic. And you've mentioned this like idea of OCD and how it sort of draws you in, right? And so you... You have this. So can you talk a little bit more about how those two things might intersect for you when you're making anything, whether it's, you know, a lick on guitar or the, the OCD thing or the practicing idea or I guess my question is, what is it about the process of doing any of these things that feels therapeutic to you? It's a variety of things like with pizza specifically, because <laughs> this is a pizza podcast after all, uh, with pizza specifically, it was more about pandemic, about like, and my life is pretty unstructured as it is. <laughs> so suddenly with pandemic and then we're at home most of the time, the days just got very messy and blurry. And so pizza became a thing I did once a week on Fridays. It just was Friday's pizza day, no matter what. And that it was therapeutic in that. You know, it gave me a little bit of structure and something to look forward to in a very weird time in human history. <laughs> <laughs> so it was therapeutic in that way. But I just find the process of working on anything and getting better at it and kind of like keeping track of your results is all. And I'm a very, I'm a spreadsheet person. I like really like recording things in my life and then seeing how they're changing over time. It's just how my brain works. It's very satisfying for whatever it is about my brain. Practicing instruments are definitely therapeutic in the same way for me. But I think <laughs> on the OCD front, there is, I always have a feeling of if I'm doing something and it's not done yet, I can't stop thinking about it until I've finished it. And in the context of like a teenager who's trying to learn the Stevie Ray Vaughan song, it's like I, I would feel sort of uncomfortable until I had felt like I had mastered the thing that I was working on. And then each time you get to that next milestone, I'm saying you, but me, each time I would get to that <laughs> milestone, then I just need another milestone to try to get to. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and it really wasn't until this is another this is related in, in high school, I really didn't perform I wouldn't say at all, but very little. There was no one really at my school that I played music with. So I just didn't perform a lot for other people. So oh, interesting. Getting playing music was very much just for me. And in my mind, like someday I'll be in a band with some other people and we'll play all the time. But I just didn't grow up with people that were serious about, you know, playing music. Not categorically, but I just didn't have my close friends were not musicians. It just wasn't in the cards in high school. So I, I almost felt like I was preparing myself for the day when I finally did meet some musicians to play with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. That's kind of amazing, though. Like, and it served, it served you well, <laughs> obviously, right? So yeah. yeah. I think, like, it wasn't until I started playing with other people that the obsession with practicing started to go away. And then thinking about, basically, I think of it as musical empathy. It's like, 
you're putting yourself in the shoes of a listener or an audience member, and you're starting to think about how they're going to feel when they experience whatever it is you're doing. And it starts becoming practicing for a lot of musicians can become more about them than about the listener. And I think that the more I started exposing myself to listeners, <laughs> the more I started thinking in those terms. Another big, big moment in my life was in junior year of college, I started to develop a condition called ulnar neuropathy in my right arm. Prior to that, I was playing guitar, I don't know, three, four hours a day. And it was my whole life outside of school. And then one morning I woke up and it felt like my funny bone was like I'd hit my funny bone, but the feeling didn't go away for the whole day. And then it was still there the next day. And then it was there the day after that. And I was like, shit. <laughs> and this was in high school? No, this was in college. In college. Uh. Yeah. And whatever. Fat, it's not a sob story. It just was a pivotal music moment for me in that it basically meant I could no longer play guitar for a zillion hours a day. Uh, right. Because part of the way my arm is shaped and the way my nerves travel through my elbow and uh, my arm is prone to getting tingly when I move my arm in guitar picky motion. <laughs> wow. So I saw a lot of specialists. I did physical therapy and whatever, yada, yada, yada. But it led to a pretty big recalibration in my mind of like, okay, my life is no longer about getting really good at an instrument. My life is now more about thinking bigger picture and like thinking more about songs and developing more of that empathy for the listener. Because it can't just be about being the greatest guitar player in the world anymore because it just wasn't in the cards for me. So it really sucked at the time. But in hindsight, it really kind of it was a moment that pushed me on whatever path I am on now. It's like I think more about production and songs and how things are put together. And I don't necessarily have to be the person that plays all the parts in the song. I often am, <laughs> but <laughs> like I have a lot of computery and synthesizery helpers <laughs> to play a lot of those parts. Like being a really technical musician just isn't, it, it stopped being something I could do. You kind of realize this new perspective of musical empathy, which I love that term, by the way. I think it's so great. How do you think about developing that muscle over time? Like, what do you do to improve it? Or what do you do to hone in on it? It becomes a lot more, put yourself in your listener's shoes and think more about how is this thing I'm creating going to be experienced? How is it going to make people feel? How do I want them to feel? And, and all of that said, you never know how someone's going to feel when they listen to your music. <laughs> right. And, you know, there's that whole concept of the art is doesn't belong to you as soon as it leaves your hands and it's all subjective and blah, 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 blah. As far as developing that muscle, it's really like, it's trying to be musically empathetic. It's like having a respect for your listener or uh, when all you care about is being really great at your instrument and like being able to play the fastest crazy thing or the most technically impossible thing. You're really just in a macro sense, you're really just saying me, 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 mm. just endlessly. You're just like saying, look at me. And that is music for a lot of musicians unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're not thinking in those terms or if you're thinking about technique 
as one of many options you can use in the music you're creating, then that already sets you out on a more empathetic path. So like players that can play insanely, they're almost like superheroes and it, it like, God bless. I'm so glad people exist like that. Yeah, I wish right. I could still do that, frankly. But to me, there's a time and a place for it. And usually music that only exists for that purpose is the worst music you've ever heard in your entire life. Like if you, I don't know, I get a lot of music-y nerd stuff in my Instagram feed, obviously. <laughs> and uh, a lot of it is just like unlistenable guitar garbage because it's just people doing things that are like, look at this crazy stuff I can do. But there's never a point in the conversation that says, what does this actually sound like? And is this pleasing or provocative or thought-provoking or... I think just stopping to think about that is already a way to develop that musical empathy muscle a little more. Yeah, it's almost like the developing of the technical skill gives you a tool with which to express something better to people. But if you're not focused on that expression, then you're essentially just playing scales or arpeggios or whatever. And Yeah, you're just like <laughs> wanky. Or, yeah. Another way to think of it, too, is that it should always be a conversation with your listeners or your audience. And like music should be about the community that you're creating in that musical experience. When you think about your community, either your community specifically, or if somebody is like, oh, I need to develop a community, right? Are there certain attributes that you imagine them having? I mean, this almost feels like a marketing exercise to me, right? Where you're like, <laughs> where you're like, this is Jane. Jane makes this much. I mean, a lot of music is, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but is the community that you create with music, is it aimed at people with like specific attributes because you find that a certain type of person is drawn to your music or is it just? Um, in my experience of touring and all that, I'm never thinking about it's, I'm certainly never thinking about what kind of audience I want to have or, you know, I'm not targeting a type of person. I'm frankly so grateful that people are showing up and care about my music and want to hear what I have to say. And, and uh, I want them to feel welcome and I want them to, I don't know, like a big data show. There's so many, there were so many layers to like humor, but musicality and, and, uh, I don't know. I also wanted to think about, I wanted people to come out of the shows thinking like, man, maybe AI really will kill all of us. <laughs> and I was doing this in 2017 and 2016 yeah. and stuff. Totally. Like, I wish I'd put my 2018 album out today. It's literally <laughs> like, I don't know, like chat GPT was what I did to market. Like I pretended to be chat GPT right. in 2018 <laughs> to talk to my fans. I created this like little I don't know, communication channel. And I would just sort of pretend to be a malignant AI and chatbot. So with community, it's, it, you, yeah, you, you can't really pick who's showing up. You know, I just want people to enjoy themselves and be kind to each other. And I want them to have fun and be entertained. And I wanted them to come away. I also was in a funny lane that they call alternative music. Like my song just kind of got sucked up into alternative radio, which right. <laughs> has a built-in, there just is a fan base that listens to that in the car. Interesting, yeah. And like in different cities around the country. So, you know, I was just sort of thrust into that world. I didn't know it existed specifically. I didn't choose that, but that is where I wound up. That's where like life placed me. 
I just can imagine that the, the people who are coming to a big data show, they probably have a lot of commonalities between themselves and the type of music they listen to, I'm sure is one of those through lines. But obviously these are like every human, right? Nuanced people with lots of different attributes and layers and stuff. And so. Absolutely. And probably my favorite experience of touring was meeting people. Playing shows is always a rush and is always the best feeling in the universe. But also when you play the same show 60 times in a row in a few months and it doesn't change a whole lot from show to show, meeting people really became one of the things I look forward to most. Like I'd always go out before or after the shows and just talk to people that were there and hear their stories. And, you know, I heard a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> like it was, it was just really wonderful. I don't know. Anything particularly crazy that you remember? As a... Um, let's see. Someone told me they lost their virginity to dangerous, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. And I, I was flattered. And, uh, let's see, this is kind of heavy, but I, I remember I met a, an Afghanistan war veteran who had, had been missing a leg and, uh, he lost it in combat. And, uh, we just talked for like 30 minutes outside of a show one night and he just told me about his life and. It was that's amazing, remarkable, yeah. and touching. And he said that my music affected him, and I just was like, you know, trying to like not cry while I'm talking. <laughs> to them. It's like, I had a lot of experiences like that where people told me that my music had a real profound effect on them, and I don't know. It just that definitely it, it was all worth it. But those moments are like heavy. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. I bet. Yeah. We've touched on AI a little bit, and we've touched on like this idea of community, musical empathy. One of the things, if I think about big data anyway, as I look at what you do as big data, you're not just putting out a track for people to listen to. You've always got visuals. I guess the best way to summarize it is it's a concept that you are presenting to people of which music is the biggest part. 100%. The music is the Trojan horse for the idea to get into somebody's brain. Oh, I love that. For my songs. Like a song that sounds like a catchy little pop song, hopefully catchy. I'm not going to very catchy. Overstate my <laughs> my own whatever, but uh like my favorite thing is when somebody the song gets into their head and they don't even know that it's about something subversive or about how like Facebook is evil or you know, I love that. But also when fans do pick up on it and they make their own theories and uh, God, I've had emails from fans where they really connect the dots and I'm just like, damn, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, the song is sort of the entryway to incept the concept. I mean, how do you think about the non-musical elements of the concept and presenting those? Uh, like visual stuff or? Yeah, visual stuff, even the guest artists that you had, I mean, you pull from a lot of different places and it's not you that's necessarily executing it. Right. So on the music, you're playing all the, most of the parts and you have a singer yep. or whatever, but how do you think about pulling in the right people for the concept? The collaborators? Yeah. People and the concept never were, were never a consideration. It was more like I just had artists that I was a huge fan of <laughs> and I would be like, Hey, you want to do a song with me sometime? <laughs> and then like cross my fingers that they would say, yes, the who I collaborated with was a lot more just like my wish list of dream 
collaborators. It was never like, you know, this song is going to be about this, so I should ask this person to work on it with me. The concepts would always be, <laughs> I would always keep a, a note in my phone of just, I'd read some article about some new tech phenomenon and I just jot it down like, you know, future lyric idea, chat GPT. If I was making an album today, <laughs> obviously it'd be pretty straightforward what I'd be writing about. <laughs> I'd just be like, we're writing down all the articles I read every day about like, you know, ex Google engineer says we're all going to die or whatever. <laughs> And then when I would be in the room with whoever the new collaborator was, I would already have the track pretty much made. I like to show up with the music done, give right. or take. Right. And then we would write what they call top line over it. Mm -hmm. And for your listeners that don't know what top line is, top line is words and melodies. And when you write them with somebody else, you usually have some kind of beat and you just throw a million ideas at it and mumble some gibberish but with some notes and be like oh that gibberish was cool let's, let's sing that again <laughs> sing that again okay that was good okay what if it's followed by this piece of gibberish and then once we have a string of gibberishes then i start to think about the concept of what does that work well with all the collaborators you brought in or do people work differently like do you have people who are like oh if i can't work this way or everybody works differently always that's just very much how I work. And I see, I see a lot of people work the way I work and can relate to it. And some people are, <laughs> some people are more resistant to trying out a different way of working. And some people are like, Oh, cool. I never worked this way. Let's try it. But usually with big data specifically, like I kind of had a format that I did things and because it was my project and you know, my concept and all that, like people are always pretty game to, you know, figure out, together it would like flex to it and yeah yeah I'm like so you know a typical big data session would be like here's this track or here's two different tracks that i'm working on take a listen and here are five different concepts i've been thinking about you know edward snowden or insert something from my list of ideas and then see which one speaks to them and you know usually they'd pick one and then we would this is sort of the Trojan horse thing. It's like we would have this concept of like, you know, Facebook is stealing all your information and selling it to advertisers. And then it's like, how do we turn that into something that sounds like a pop song? How do we distill whatever malice is happening here into like two or three words that could just as easily be about a relationship or about, you know, I feel happy today or that's good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So like that Facebook song in particular became the business of emotion. I'm like, to me that on the one hand could easily have been like a Janet Jackson song could have been like a deep cut on like rhythm nation or something, but also <laughs> it's literally the business of selling and selling people's emotions. Right. <laughs> and I don't think most people that heard that song on the radio were like, Oh, this is clearly about Facebook selling right. people's emotions and manipulating them. But that is what it's about. And then for the fans that kind of dug a little deeper and they would understand that. And uh, the fans that got there eventually would would be that much more connected to the music because they're like, oh, this was about something a little deeper than just a <laughs> dumbass song. And part of the fun for me always was pop songs are so often about just mundane, stupid stuff. Or like, does this person like me? Or, or like, should I call them back? Or like, just like stuff that is just... 
I don't need to hear songs about stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody already knows that kind of stuff. Like, why not? I don't know. There's such something mischievous about like saying something a little more deep, but packaging it as something mundane. I also love how that is exactly what big data is, right? It's like you, pretty much, you know, the whole it's it's so great. It's so uh, pun intended. It's so meta in a lot of ways where you, you know what I mean? Where you have this concept that you not only creating for people to experience directly, but also it's like subversively there as well. It's it's, it's amazing. Oh, thanks, man. Very clever. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to AI next. So, yeah, you said you wish that uh, that 3.0 would have come out today or that you're working on it today. <laughs> yeah. If you were to do that or anything, you know, now or whatever, well, how would you approach it? What is it about GPT? I mean, clearly you sort of saw this coming in some way. And so. Absolutely. How do you feel I mean, about it now that it's here? <laughs> so. Well, it's okay. It's complicated. I think if I were going to be making an album today, it would be so boring to make that album. It's like making an album about AI now that everyone on earth is constantly talking and thinking about it. And every day there's a new New York Times article about like whatever the next doom angle is about all of it. It's like, it's like a pretty gentrified idea now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. When I was making it back in the day, I kind of treated it, not a PhD, that's, that would be giving myself too much credit, but I really did try to do a lot of research and I, I read a whole lot of different books across the spectrum of pessimism to optimism <laughs> of how the future might look. And uh, so, you know, Ray Kurzweil being like Johnny Optimist and then like <laughs> one book that was called Our Final Invention, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> which I used as a lyric. I have a lyric in there and it's like, I'm telling you now, I'm your final invention. Wow. Yeah, I just tried to do a lot of research into like how AI might play out all the different scenarios. And what we're seeing now is very much one of them. I very much read about all of this and it's playing out almost exactly the same as how these books all predicted. And I have a feeling it will continue to. The concept that really became the backbone of my album at the time, but the one that kind of kept recurring across all those books was we're inevitably going to develop this kind of technology and it's inevitably going to get very crazy. We're already seeing it get very crazy. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of yeah. like how fucking crazy it's going to be. Like we're going to be rewriting our DNA. We're going to start merging our brain with technology. And then if you don't, you're going to be a severe disadvantage. And then also you might not be able to compete with the AI that's stealing your job or trying to kill you if you don't have a computer in your brain. Like this, all these things sound fucking nuts until you read about like, until you read a book that lays them all out together as part of a sequence. And then you're like, oh yeah, we are kind of inching that way. And the recurring scariest theme is that it becomes much like many things in America and in the world, it becomes corporations kind of getting ahead of themselves and regulation being woefully behind and out of touch. And that's a much larger political discussion <laughs> since the eighties or the seventies of deregulation and, you know, let the market figure itself out. But right now we're letting the market figure out how we're all going to eventually die because of this stuff. And that's terrifying. <laughs> so now we have companies competing to get to super intelligence first and if they try to play it safe, they feel at an economic disadvantage. So they 
every company across the globe is incentivized not to be safe about how we roll out the most dangerous technology of human existence. It's a race. It's literally a race. Like the most recent example is, you know, Google kind of pumping the brakes on AI chatbots because they know that it's dangerous. Not dangerous today, but dangerous a few years down the road. And as soon as ChatGPT is like in the news constantly, they're like, oh shit, for everything we've said for the last decade, it now threatens our business model with search because now search is in trouble. So we got to, you know, <laughs> throw out all of our precautions because we can't let Microsoft beat us. And that's happening on a global scale. Uh, wow. It gets dark pretty fast the more you think about this <laughs> stuff. Would you use AI to create music? I mean, would you use it? Totally. As, I mean, yeah, I know you love synths and stuff, old and new. And Absolutely. So, yeah. This is interesting. It's interesting to think about in the chat GPT context too. Like chat GPT and whatever comes next, they're all incredible. But people that are using it most effectively are just really good at prompting it. So one guy I, I like on Twitter kind of likened this rise of chatbots to the bicycle. So who is it on Twitter that you, that you like? Do you know his name? It's this guy, his name is Brett Winton. He's, um, he works for that stock investing company, ARK Invest. Okay. Okay. It's very polarizing because they make like <laughs> wild bets on the future and they, they say that everything's on a five-year time horizon. So they're like, there's not a lot of accountability for how they do in the near term because it's all about five years from now that said they're really smart and they really research a lot of this stuff quite a bit so anyways he likened it to a bicycle in that you know it's not going to replace you it's just going to help you go a lot faster but you still have to pedal right so prompting is the pedaling and the people that get really good at the prompting whatever it's going to happen whether we right. like it or not. So you better learn how to freaking prompt. Yeah. Right. It becomes a tool. Yeah. So in the musical context, like you still have to have ideas and you still have to, <laughs> you still have to prompt whatever AI tool you're using in music to get something interesting enough for people to care about. And you have to shape it as well. Like it outputs something that feels a little today, at least it feels a little, you know, off the mark always. Yep. So like the thing I was going to talk about earlier was that, you know, the Drake weekend ghostwriter thing, like it had a moment. It was extremely newsworthy for obvious reasons, but also at the end of the day, it's like not a great song. It's just like a sort of throwaway. Like if it was an actual Drake song, it would be like a low streaming, pretty deep cut. Maybe it wouldn't have gotten released, honestly, because it's just it doesn't meet the bar of like Drake. It was just sort of fine. Right. It didn't blow up because it was great. It blew up because it was topical. No, it blew up because it was like, holy shit, you can fake Drake in the weekend yeah. on a song. <laughs> How cool is that? So if that song were competing in the marketplace as an AI generated piece of music for real without all the legal complications, I don't think it would do very well. Once we're in an era of like songs are made by AI and people accept that because it's coming, you still have to have a good song in yeah. order for it to last <laughs> and stick. So that's where, you know, yes, new technology is scary, but also it's exciting and you still have to use new technology in exciting ways in order for it to have an impact in culture and in the world. Do you think music is different than, or, or I guess any sort of artistic expression, even like poetry or something like that? Do you think that there is an element of, because one of the things that I think about is AI is essentially a predictive model about what thing comes next as it's computing 
the answer to your question, right? And it's information is kind of everything. And so it's very median, right? It doesn't seem like it would necessarily find the best thing or even the worst thing. It's a flattening. It's just a flattening. Yeah. Like yeah. every single version of AI is based on things that have already happened in whatever whatever type of narrow intelligence we're talking about. So Google Translate into Spanish is still just based on Spanish text that exists and well, translations that exist. It's not going to like come up with a novel way of translating things. It's going to synthesize things that already happened. The same is true for <laughs> when we get there with like regularly creating music. It's just going to be like an amalgamation of stuff that exists. I don't think the AI is going to go. Part of why we wind up attaching to things in culture is because it says something new somehow in whatever medium, poetry, TV, film, music. I mean, even God, like literally any, anything in life, politics, like news, like anything grabs our attention because it's new and it feels like it's never been done before. And there's always going to be some degree of familiarity. And that's part of what makes it easier to ingest as a consumer, because you have to be able to relate to it. It has to feel familiar on some level, but it still needs to get you to a new idea somehow, even if it's a tiny new idea, it's got to, if there isn't something new being said, it's not a lasting, meaningful idea. It's not an idea at all. Jeez, that was very abstract. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think, I, I think you're right. I guess my, my question with the AI music generation thing is like, like I said, anything that's sort of a creative output, is there some, I don't want to, uh, I'm not going to sit here and say, I think there's an exception because I don't think there is. I think AI is just going to, like you, I believe is just going to get really amazing, really fast. Yeah. And then really scary, really fast. Yeah. But how does, I mean, how do we go from like this sort of world of median and flattening, I, thought, I like that way that you put it, the flattening to now it's creating something that's truly exceptional that people really gravitate to as if, you know, Michael Jackson's beat it came out, but it was AI instead of a person. Yep. Like, how do we get there or will we get there? Yeah. Will we get there? Or does it always require some human judging it and nudging it and prompting it in a way? I mean, who knows? I don't see why we wouldn't get there. Because even when we hear a non-AI generated, <laughs> like, like, how do we say that? A human piece of content? <laughs> even when something says something really new, it's not really new. That's like the dumbest way I could say that. Like we hear some comedian make a joke about like something very specific in today's world. Like, I don't know. I don't know enough. I'm not a funny enough person to, you know, come up with whatever that joke is. But just imagine comedian tells joke about something that's relevant today. It's new because it's about it's in today's context. But the fundamental idea of whatever the joke has existed for all of humanity. Right. So a lot of what artists do, a lot of what creative people do is like boil down a human concept into today's context. It's like recontextualizing whatever the thought is. So on some level, there are no new ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there really are just recontextualizing of old ideas. So when I think about content creation in those terms, seeing an AI start to really surprise us with new shit is totally possible. Mm. There's going to be a point where the things AI comes up with are just beyond human comprehension mm. and how they get to mm. those points are going to be beyond our understanding. I see. Yeah. We just won't understand 
it's going to be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying it's just going to be crazy in the future. But now we're like living through the already crazy times. Yes, I do think we will experience AI generated stuff that is new and yeah. exciting. Yeah, it'll just be woven into everything. Yeah. Yeah. If nothing yeah. else, because of that recontextualizing in today's world. One last thing. This is what I was going to say a lot earlier. This was like this revelation I had the other day. Oh, yes, yes. With AI-generated music. So, and I was thinking about it partly because of my like publishing and, you know, copyright background. I was thinking about all the legal ramifications of like name and likeness and, you know, <laughs> what kind of can of worms are we yeah. opening up here? But like we're going to have, someone is going to have to figure this out uh, and probably make a ton of money off it once they figure it out. It'll probably be the AI that figures it out. Or that, yeah. <laughs> but what we're going to start experiencing, whether we like it or not, is in the past, an artist creates a thing, and then once they put it out into the world, it doesn't belong to them anymore. Uh, right, right. So once I put my song out, however Andy hears that song is how Andy hears that song. And it might be completely the opposite of whatever my intention was. And it's not my place to tell you that, no, you're listening to my song wrong, because there's no wrong way to experience any of these things. The new paradigm we're entering is that now the artist, it's him or herself, is now in that position. As soon as the artist exists, they don't belong to themselves anymore. And that's like a very crazy thing to get your arms around. You have to explain this again. I'm not following. So think about the weekend. Okay. Just have a long think about the weekend. Think about his wonderful hair and his <laughs> great son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the weekend is a brand on some yeah. level. You know, he has a very clear identity mm -hmm. and he puts a lot of thought into how he presents. He probably has a team of people that put together how everything is presented under the rubric of the weekend. Right. It's like when you think of the weekend, you have the whole idea in your mind of what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And he spent most of his adult life cultivating that and developing it. And every time he puts a new album out or whatever, he's like, actually like, tweaking it and evolving it or whatever. So now in this AI generative time, now anyone can take that brand of the weekend and do whatever they want with it. So the very idea of like this brand of the weekend, it no longer belongs to him. It belongs to everybody. And so now the challenge is how does the weekend copyright the concept of the weekend. Right. And that to me is where the real business opportunity is for somebody that really wants to get in the weeds on it. Yeah. It's like grand rights for your life kind of, or for your, the professional, the, the public facing side of your life. Literally. Yeah. And I know Grimes is now like sort of working on that and like, that's exciting. Cause she's just taking a shot and like, yeah, cause nobody, it's the wild West. So who knows how any of this is. It's cool that she's trying something, but, uh, it's not going to be far into the future where some person can completely generate a new song, video, maybe an album, maybe, maybe even a live like hologram experience or like all of the different components of entertainment will ultimately be AI generatable. Right. So anyone will be able to create a, the weekend experience on their own and put it on TikTok or whatever the new social media platform is in five years. And that's, a, I'm trying to explain the idea of like the very idea of the weekend as a person and a 
brand. Like the concept of it. Yeah, yeah. That no longer belongs to the weekend. It's basically like anyone will be able to make art or stuff in the style of the weekend. Right. At the click of a button. And that's like a very crazy. Which is amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. One of the things that I, this sort of reminds me of one of the things that I was thinking of recently, which is because I too have been, and I should clarify really quickly for folks listening, grand rights are basically the rights for a, a musical that include like the play and the choreography and the music licensing and all that stuff that makes up a, a play. So when we say that grand rights in the sense of the weekend, we're talking about everything that Alan's talking about. But one of the things that I was thinking about is like, when I reflect on, you know, I took a bunch of music history classes when I was majoring in music. And the thing that you learn is like, all of these guys are deeply and heavily influenced by each other over time, right? Big like, time. Big time. You know, and so when I think about AI, I'm like, this is kind of like that, just at a way more profound scale. And you can do it without putting in the work that Alan put in shredding on his guitar, like getting really good at music, right? You just, you shortcut to this place where taking something from your head and putting it out into the world, there's a lot less labor involved in that now, which I think is really incredible. Yep. And it's, you know, there are always going to be, I don't think I'm an old fart yet, but there are always going to be curmudgeonly old farts that are like kids today don't have to work at all on like <laughs> practicing that guitar or whatever. And I think that the, the point back to prompting and like figuring out how to use whatever the, the new tool is, is still a very valid and important skill. It's just, it's today's skill. Yeah. And you'll always also have backlashes against whatever that flattening is. Like, okay, so you know that band Turnstile? No, I don't know Turnstile. They're great. And they really rock. They're a guitar band. And they they basically, they draw on a lot of 90s stuff. So it sort of like tickles me in a specific way because it, <laughs> it really connects to my youth. It's like, it's very much a record I would have played guitar along to. And right. I haven't felt like that in a very long time. And they've become like big and I think a lot of it is in reaction to like, well, finally, somebody's like playing some fucking instruments and like, <laughs> you know, rocking. And it's just about like having fun and rocking. And that, you know, that's a reaction to whatever else is happening culturally. So I, I bring it up. I Also, my kid really loves it. So I like it's become, it's just become more of a staple in the house. But uh, I'm just bringing it up as like, you know, there's always going to be something that becomes a phenomenon because it directly is against whatever the trend is. Yeah. Let me ask you another question about this AI piece. As we talk about music and sort of being inspired by somebody and being able to output it. So during the pandemic, I started practicing my horn more. I'm a trombone player. And I was amazed. So what would happen was I'm in meetings for a lot of my day. Sometimes I wind up with 10 minutes. And so you can't do, you, you can, but you you can't really like do a workout really fast, right? You yeah. could, but yep. they're sweaty for a meeting. So I would keep my horn behind me. And I shouldn't have been surprised, but I'm a naive person sometimes. <laughs> and it blew me away that practicing my horn, and I was just doing my jazz patterns book, practicing my horn, breathing and blowing, this physical and mental stimulation that I was getting that was creating music. It's just such a different feeling from either doing something like a puzzle or a maze or 
coding or exercise and you're kind of creating something that's really fun and beautiful at the same time. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so that's not going to go away, right? Like people will still love creating in the, the old fashioned way, I guess, in some sense. I completely relate and understand. And, you know, if I wasn't cursed with the hands that I have, I'd be practicing fucking piano every day. <laughs> do you <laughs> like I do you practice singing more or something like that? That like is there something that you can do? When I toured a lot, I practiced a lot. But that was different because it had a purpose, you know? It wasn't just for the joy of doing it. I think the thing I probably I don't know if I'd call it practice, but the closest thing to that of like just making it just for, you know, flexing the muscles is really synthesizers. Like as you may have noticed over here, <laughs> I have my little what we call a modular synthesizer. And uh, you basically buy these little components that all do different, very specialized functions. Like one is just an oscillator and one's a filter and one is an envelope generator, blah, 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 blah. It's like a zillion different ultra nerd concepts that you can <laughs> get into and watch YouTube tutorials about. And uh, like I use that equipment in stuff that I make. I definitely don't use it all the time in stuff that I make, but 95% of the joy of having it and investing the time is really just like being in a playground and just like seeing how it plays with itself and how I can, I don't know, manipulate sound. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very therapeutic in a similar way to what you were describing. Therapeutic again. Yeah. Does this also come up for you? Um, so right now you're working on the score for a documentary called Left Behind. Does it come up for you when you're composing as well to a film or is that different because you're doing it sort of as part of another project? So, you know, in terms of like the playing around with stuff thing. Yeah, exactly. That, that hands-on sort of visceral experience. It depends. Like it really depends on the project. Like in this movie in particular, a lot of the, the playing around with the knobs comes <laughs> when I'm working on drones and when I need to create like ambient sort of just like blobs of sound that's when i like really have a field day with the gear because like it's very it's wonderful for that and you can totally get lost in it and uh a lot of times i'll i'll know that i need for a scene something sort of emotional and i know that it's only going to be 45 seconds long so i might set up a patch and then what's a patch what is what does a patch do a patch is I guess we just say it's like a finished sound. <laughs> so like you take physical wires from your oscillator into your, you know, your uh, VCA or amplifier. And then you might have another oscillator that affects one of the parameters of the sound. And then you run that through a filter and then you run that through a reverb and all of that together with all of the physical wires connecting each module. That would be my patch. Right. It's like the combination of a variety of different um, variables that you're it's you're, yeah. you're basically okay. like building an instrument. Every time you play with it, you're building a new instrument and it's completely customizable. And so it's it's so fun because you can really go deep. So I'll build a patch that I know is going to be droney and ambient. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly what it's going to sound like. But I know that it's in the ballpark. How do you know when you're like, that's it? That's what I, is it just? You just like keep tweaking. You're like, oh, this could be a little more interesting or this is too static or this is too <laughs> crazy. And you just constantly like adjust knobs and parameters. 
once I'm in drone ballpark, then I'll start recording and I'll just like let it run for 10 minutes or maybe longer, maybe like way longer, depending on how, <laughs> depending on how zoned out I am. And I really just play with it. And then, you know, I'll know about two minutes in the first two minutes were total garbage. And then right around the two minute mark, I think something interesting happened. That's amazing. And then I, I rode that wave for another two minutes and then, oh, I hit that one button and then it sounded like garbage again. So the only usable chunk is that middle two. And then I'll have that in my computer and I'll edit it and I'll kind of make it fit the scene eventually. So that would be, that would be a way that I can kind of get lost and play a little bit, but actually put it to use in the thing I'm working on. I love this idea of starting somewhere. You don't quite know where you're going to end up, right? I think, and I think this is so true. I think one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, right, is like the way that people create stuff, whether it's music or art or even, quite frankly, even business or whatever, it's all so relatable because, you know, people talk about getting into the zone. People talk about shaping things. They talk about growing things, right? It's all sort of this similar undercurrent even though the outputs are, are very different and sort of the reasoning behind it all is very different absolutely fascinating absolutely i like I, I don't know this is where my obsessive nature is a huge uh detriment <laughs> uh is that like i look at my phone compulsively as mm -hmm. do many many people mm -hmm. and i kind of i really relish any opportunity where like I don't, I just can't look at my phone or yeah. I forget that I have it. And those mo moments are unfortunately fewer and farther in between. But when I can find those moments, I really try to stay in it. Are you seeking them out, you know, somehow? Are you saying like, well, I'm going to walk in the park today or whatever? Or Sometimes. <laughs> but even when I walk in the park, I like still look at my phone for, <laughs> you know, 50% of that walk, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but like I've been, I've been starting to swim more and, oh. uh, I just like love that I have to go in water <laughs> for 40 <laughs> minutes. So I literally am physically separated from my phone and I'm not thinking about that bullshit for that 40 minutes. I, I really relish those moments and practicing an instrument can be exactly the same thing or getting lost in your synthesizer or like, I don't know, you're working on a job and you just like really have to pay attention. Um, I relish any of those moments and I, to what you said, they're all, they all have that same common thread of like, they hold your focus and the really good ones are the ones where it doesn't feel like focus. It's yeah. just, you're just doing it cause. Yeah. I love it. Where can people find you? And do you have any asks of folks that are listening musically or otherwise? I keep a pretty low profile nowadays, but I still have an Instagram account, which is big data, big data. And I have a Twitter account, which I mostly just lurk use it but i lurk okay i don't really tweet you're watching though <laughs> yeah you can find me watching you on twitter i think that's big data big data too and then i don't know I'm, and then aside from like big data on the on the dsps do you have other musical stuff out there you want people to listen to or find somewhere i'm knee deep in this film so that's kind of been dominating my life for a few months but we're almost done and i'm gonna be really excited to share that with the world. Do you want to talk about what the film is about? I don't know if we touched on it too deeply uh, and maybe a little bit about how you got involved with it too. Sure. Um, so I got, 
how I got involved with it was actually kind of this wonderful serendipity. I pandemic happened, which was bad. And uh about halfway through pandemic, my wife and I we were living in Brooklyn in a small apartment. Or not small, but like, you know, a New York apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh we have a a a small a young boy and he's wonderful. And during pandemic, both sets of the grandparents left New York for good. At which point we were like, hmm, maybe we should uh, reconsider some of our life plans because we're like (laughs) in this tiny apartment 95% of every day and we don't know when that's going to end. And so we wound up moving to Philly. One of the windfalls of moving here was that a friend of mine who's a music supervisor also moved to the Philly area in recent years because he grew up near here. And so I was like, oh, I have a music friend in town. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) And so, you know, we just started hanging out more and I started doing some work for him on a few things. And then his very close childhood friend is the brother of the director of this film. So he's known her uh, his whole life. And she was, she was a heavy duty news producer and, uh, you know, was basically in TV news for a long time. And this is her first directorial debut. And so he put us in touch because he just, he thought it'd be a good fit. And he was right because she's so lovely and we get along great. And I love the project and she's given me a lot of room to just sort of be myself with the stuff I'm making. It's just really like the best kind of project to work on. (laughs) You know, when the brief is basically like, just make stuff you think is cool. That's a pretty cool brief. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just be yourself. Um, like, okay, I yeah. can do that. <laughs> it's like, oh, I think I can do that. You know. So anyways, um, the movie's called Left Behind, and it's about it's it's basically about dyslexia in the public school system and how it is just like criminally underfunded, under it's just a thing that's completely overlooked by society, and it has an unbelievably huge impact on society. So There are a lot of stats. I won't go on and on about all of them, but the biggest one is 50%. I repeat, 50% of the American prison population is dyslexic. Wow. That's crazy. And it's not really by accident. Wow. As in, like, think about why that's the case. Right. If you're a child and all, no one is helping you, you have dyslexia, which is by all accounts, like a, remediated all the science is settled like everybody knows what to do when you have dyslexia it literally just comes down to do you have enough money to to do it because if you go to public school they kind of look the other way and they make it right like are you lucky enough to be in a situation where somebody notices that you have dyslexia because as a kid you have no idea (laughs) a hundred percent yeah and so whatever i'm not going to spoil all the details of the documentary but it's 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 really like staggering the things I've learned working on this. Like you just think about it, like you're a kid and well, whatever. I'm not, I'm not going to get into the whole, I don't want to like blow the movies <laughs> spot, but. And we'll link to the, we'll link to the movie website in the show notes as well. So people can find it. And um, I think there's a mailing list there too, if they're super interested. So yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. But it's, it's really powerful and they're, they're just doing great work and I feel so fortunate to be a part of it. And you know, I hope it really brings awareness to pretty, pretty important issue. And really, sorry, the core of the movie follows these moms in the New York City public school system. 
and like their exasperation, they all have dyslexic children and they're all dealing with the system and the complete lack of support and funding and da 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 da. Um, so these moms, it's really a movie about these moms because they band together to form a school that is public and for focused on dyslexia. And uh, so it really just follows their journey. The story. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And now today, fast forward to today, and New York has, the school is up and running. Cool. And, and so now we're going to start to get real data on the outcomes. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. That's awesome. And then, you know, the really huge finger cross is that this starts to have national implications and other schools start to follow suit. So it's really cool. I, I'm really stoked to be working on it. That's super cool. It sounds like an amazing project. Um, I don't want to open a whole other bag of worms, but I was thinking the other day too about how AI will help. It might actually revolutionize the way we think about education. 100%. In a way where like just memorizing facts, like not a, that was archaic 20 years ago. Now, yep. <laughs> there's no yeah, excuse. All, all, yeah, every fact is at your disposal <laughs> at any moment. The thing that yeah. we need is the critical thinking part of that. Exactly. As in not exactly. everything you're going to get back is a fact. That's right. So how do you start to discern between those things when you're 10? And how do you decide the ethics of it all? And that's the real learning now. It's fascinating. Yeah. And hopefully the gerontocracy in our Congress comes up with some nimble solutions to these things. Fingers crossed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Uh, <laughs> Alan, um, thank you so much. We'll, we'll link to a bunch of the stuff we talked about in the show notes, including where to find you, which is Twitter and Instagram as Big Data, Big Data. Awesome, man. That's Big Data twice. Indeed. Thank you for coming. It's so nice to chat with you about all this stuff. And Yeah, man. Thank you so much. It's so nice to connect and catch up. Man, it's been too long. Cool. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. <laughs> Thanks once again for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed this podcast. And we'll catch you next time on Music Lessons.